$150 million. That is the amount of capital funding New York City has committed toward the creation of a Center for Climate Solutions on Governor's Island. Here to discuss this initiative and other activities and plans for Governor's Island is Alicia Glenn, the chair of the Trust for Governor's Island. The Trust is the entity responsible for the island's ongoing planning, operations, and development. It was created in 2010 when full control of Governor's Island was transferred to the city from New York State. Alicia was Deputy Mayor for Housing and Economic Development from 2014 through 19. She joined the de Blasio administration after 12 years as head of the Urban Investment Group at Goldman Sachs and as a nationally recognized expert in urban development, infrastructure finance, housing, job creation, and policy. As Deputy Mayor, she was a repeat guest on this podcast and other CBC events, a regular subject of and commentator in Gotham Gazette articles, and much more. And welcome everyone to What's the Data Point from Gotham Gazette and Citizens Budget Commission. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. And I'm Carol Kellerman for CBC. And uh, we're very happy to have Alicia back with us today. If you missed any of our most recent episodes, we've had a couple of really good conversations on the state budget and state finances a couple episodes ago, and most recently on the city budget and city finances state budget episode you should find. We had State Senator Liz Kruger, who's the chair of the Senate Finance Committee, E.J. McMahon of the Empire Center, a couple of CBC experts. It was a really good, thoughtful discussion on state budgeting and finance matters. And then most recently, Carol and I spoke with City Comptroller Scott Stringer about the new city budget, which clocks in at roughly $100 billion. And we talked to Comptroller Stringer about that. So find those recent episodes of What's the Data Point? wherever you get your podcasts or at the CBC or Gotham Gazette websites. So we're very happy to have Alicia Glenn back with us today to talk about Governor's Island and more, including uh, hopefully if we have a few minutes at the end, sort of the broader future of New York City uh, as the de Blasio administration comes to an end and what we're looking at moving forward, coming out of COVID and much more. All right, Alicia, thanks. Thanks again for being here. Thank you for having me. It's nice to be back. Uh, so let's start with Governor's Island, though. Um, why'd you take this on? What's your overall sort of vision for, for the island here? And, and it's, it seems like it's, it's already moving along. One of the things that I thought was most interesting in my portfolio when I was in City Hall was um, the, the parks that are actually um, public benefit corporations or not actually owned by the city and, and some of the issues and challenges and opportunities that those um, parks present um, to create a new hybrid model of how we think about great public spaces for New Yorkers, but also allow them to not be subject necessarily to what, as you all know all too well, can be up and down budgets, right? And the prioritization or deprioritization of open spaces, depending on what the status of the budget is. And so, you know, both the Brooklyn Bridge Park, where I think one most people would agree the way in which that was ultimately developed has proven out the thesis that smart, responsible development can in fact um, be what great public open spaces need in order to provide that clarity and surety for New Yorkers and for tourists and for the and really to become models for development around the globe. So I really enjoyed and I think we did a fantastic job in Brooklyn Bridge Park and Governor's Island is an even more unique and exciting opportunity, I think to take some of those lessons and to do it in a way that, again, will continue to push the envelope on 
assuring that these unique public open spaces, particularly with the history associated with Governor's Island, will not become um, underinvested in over time. And that to me would be the biggest tragedy ever because it took so many centuries for New Yorkers to even realize what a resource it was that for me personally as a New Yorker, assuring that it would be a resource for New Yorkers for centuries to come was a great challenge for me. You just got it and rezoned. Why did you do that? And, and why was that important? Well, I think, you know, one of the things that has held back or there have been some stop and start efforts, as you know, over the past couple of decades, the, the original plan when it was transfer, transferred from the federal government and the Coast Guard to first the state city entity and then ultimately the city and then ultimately the trust, which I chair, was always um, to have development on certain parcels in the island. But the zoning, strangely enough, um, when the deed um, was transferred to what now is a trust, was low, low density residential. I think it was R1 or R2, because as you may all know, it was in fact a residential neighborhood for the Coast Guard. And so you, we inherited zoning that was literally like Levittown. I mean, totally bizarre and inappropriate for what we wanted to do there. And I think some of the challenges that my predecessors had, both in City Hall and at the trust, was trying to convince the development and investment and institutional world that they would take on a rezoning. As we all know, that is a very politically challenging um, endeavor. And so we made the decision when I became chair that if we were serious about activating the Southern part of the island and really creating not just an institutional educational use, but also driving revenue that would protect the island um, in perpetuity, we had to take on the hard work. We had to do the lifting and send a signal to the marketplace that we were going to do the zoning. And I think that that's why this is a completely different approach than, again, my predecessors undertook. We, we did it. Um, I think the vote was 48-2, which in this somewhat toxic land use environment is pretty extraordinary. Um, and we were able to build real consensus. But now it is a signal to the marketplace, both nonprofits, institutions, and um, commercial users that we're serious. Um, that we've done the lifting for you. Now you have to come to us with great proposals. Say, say more about that. Before we get to the climate center, let's leave that aside for a second. Um, what is what is the the marketplace? What do you envision as being the key pieces of that marketplace? Yeah. And obviously we'll interact with the, the climate center. Sure. I mean, it's always been, certainly since I've been you know involved in the island for the past seven or eight years, um, we have always wanted to have education, um, innovation, um, thought leadership, um, and something unique be the centerpiece, right? It was never going to be, let's just sell the island to the highest bidder, right? I mean, when I, when I would see some of that stuff in the zeitgeist or read about that, I, I just completely baffled me because that was never either the intention, even from the original deed transfer, but certainly I don't think the city has ever signaled that. You know, this is a unique piece of dirt in the center of the world. And so you have an incredibly exciting opportunity to do something different here, right? And for me, that generally is not just, oh, let's build a bunch of office buildings, you know, like a la Hudson Yards, right? Like that was never in the mix. So the thinking behind the development is that it's anchored by, again, a place and a set of users who are recognizing and embracing the unique opportunity to be in an island, which is both of the city and outside of the city. Um, for us, climate is the central issue right now facing not just New York City, but the globe. New York City has always been thought leaders in global problems. Why did they put the United Nations here in the 
1940s, right? I mean, that, you know, those issues of post-war reconstruction and what the world was going to look like, we decided to center in New York. My personal theory is climate change is the same issue, and we have this incredible space. And climate change is both an academic issue, a community engagement issue, a how New Yorkers are going to deal with climate change, like literally deal with it when the subways flood. And it's also an opportunity to really be engaged in an evolving innovation economy, where if we're serious about green jobs and thinking about what kinds of sector diversification we need to engage in, that comes from intellectual thinking about issues. And this is the perfect place to do it. So the idea is climate solutions is both an academic and intellectual and community engagement issue, a research issue. And it's also how do you practically apply those learnings to something that creates jobs and actually creates real life solutions. And we think that this is the only place in New York City that could accommodate that. Okay, so you put out a request for expressions of interest from academic institutions to come forward with ideas, and you said you're willing to put in a hundred million plus to invest in infrastructure with capital dollars. And I believe right now you're taking interested parties on tours of the island. All the all the proposals are due in August. Uh, end of got- September, end of okay. September, even, even we're not crazy enough to think people are putting together our RFEIs during their month off. So have you gotten a lot of interest? Yeah. I mean, I have to say it's been extraordinary. First of all, the team and, and we have been doing a lot of sort of, I hate the word soft marketing because it sounds so like techie, but you know, we didn't, we didn't want to go out with something without basically surveying you know, what, what we, we had an idea, right? And, and the last thing you want to do is like have some idea that turns out to be completely a flop and everybody thinks it's crazy. And I think there's some history of this with the island, um, that there have been some ideas out there that sort of went nowhere. And not to blame anybody, but, you know, this, uh, anybody who knows me, like we weren't going to fail. Like I'm not interested in failure. And so in order to um, sort of minimize the likelihood of failure, we spent uh, really the past two years engaging with the board, doing a lot of research around what was, quote unquote, the competitive set, if it even existed. You know, was this actually a good idea or was like Hong Kong beating us to the punch, right? And we'd be competing with some other big idea. Um, and also, you know, really began and, you know, we're not geniuses and, and in some ways this is tragic, but I think it's fair to say that over the past two or three years, the awareness of climate change is like a real issue and not just like a theoretical existential threat um, has made it increasingly clear both to academic institutions, research institutions and business that the time is now. Um, And so I think our timing was somewhat impeccable when we went out and sort of did some of this early marketing and sort of soft selling and really engaging with people. I think, you know, somebody said it best to me when they said, you know, 100 years ago, somebody came up with the idea after the pandemics of 1918 that universities would have to start thinking about public health, right? And then suddenly every university worth its weight, you know, had a school of public health. And I think that we're at a place now where serious universities and academic institutions are going to have a school of climate change or environmental studies. And we want to be at the forefront of that. You know, if you have 100 people saying this is the most amazing thing I've ever seen, you know, I'd give it 25 of those are going to actually show up in a meaningful way. But that's a pretty good ratio for these kinds of offerings. And we're just seeing really high quality people. And, and it's not harebrained stuff, Carol. It's, it's actually really thoughtful and interesting. And, 
And I think that's where the lessons learned from Cornell Tech and some of the other things, you know, have helped inform our process, right? And given us legitimacy as market makers. The vision is one academic institution will create, will be the anchor tenant and create something or? You know, I think it's highly unlikely, although who knows, it'll be one academic institution that becomes the centerpiece. I mean, even Cornell Mm -hmm. Tech is a collaboration, right, between several Mm -hmm. institutions. It's also very important to us that, you know, Nonprofits or research institutions that aren't technically a, a university have an opportunity to be part of this. And I think part of what's going to be very interesting is seeing how, you know, it's like a dating app for climatologists, right? Like, let's see how these people all come together and <laughs> do something interesting. And it's also very important to us that respondents think deeply about, even if their roots are not in New York City, how are they going to integrate the academic and research um, infrastructure that already exists in New York and make sure that, that that is part of their proposal so that, you know, what I like to say, it's just like regular New Yorkers don't feel like this is something not for them, right? So even if it's something as simple as like, you know, community colleges should be able to think about how this can also benefit their students. Not everybody has to be, you know, on their third PhD. Does CUNY in some way have to be a part of this or thought of or considered responses that understand how to integrate and capitalize on some of the great educational infrastructure that we have here in New York would, you know, it would be a good idea. Let's just leave it at that. (laughs) So let me interject the CBC finance questions. Um, You must. Do you expect it to help fund the rest of the operating costs of the Island? And could you talk a little bit about what those operating costs are? Yes. So the goal here, and again, that the center itself um, may not be, um, may not generate enough revenue to put the island on a permanent um, financial sustainability, because you have to remember that the, the center itself may not be the only like physical building, right? I mean, what we're trying to do here is do placemaking. And so we're leading with the academic nonprofit research development stuff, but with those respondents are certainly more than welcome to, and we have contemplated and the zoning is flexible enough. um, And we will be very open to um, responses that include more revenue generating uses, whether it's um, you know, I don't know how many, as they say, you know, incubators, you know, one, one, one city can have, but certainly, you know, incubators, um, office space, um, hotels. I mean, there's some pretty great hoteliers out there who are doing, you know, carbon neutral hotels. We want to do convening, right? I think we've, we've talked about this before, you know, not a lot of great places in New York City to launch a project or have a product or a project and have a convening, right? I mean, you know, we think there's a huge opportunity here for other uses that we would hope um, will in fact be more revenue generating. The actual academic climate center itself, we do expect that institution to come with the finances to pay for it. It may not generate revenue for the island, but certainly the whole development plan should, and this is how we really thought about the finances and the sizing of the development, should, like in Brooklyn Bridge Park, the amount of development and the mix of uses will generate enough revenue to wean the island off of its operating budget, which is currently about $20 million a year, 80% of which is from the city's general fund. 
Um, and that is just a place I don't like to be as a chair of the board, to be dependent upon that much operating support from the city. And that operating budget will only grow because we have a pretty bare bones budget right now. Um, and so we need to develop a mechanism where the CAM or whatever the mechanism is will pay for the island itself, separate from capital. But yes, people have to build their own buildings and they have to then pay some rent or CAM that would go to the operations of the island. So right now, before any of this, um, just with what you already have on the island, it's about a $20 million a year operating expense. Does that include the ferry? Uh, no, that does not include the ferry. The ferry is a little more complicated because, well, there's our ferry, which it does include the operating expenses of like the gas and the whatever going back and forth. But when people think about the ferry now, because we're on NYC ferry, those costs are attributed to NYC ferry. As, uh, as, we, as we have committed both in the RFEI and publicly to expanding access, um, that's going to be a combination probably of increased NYC ferry, depending on how that all works out in the next administration. But I hope and believe that that will not just stay, but grow. Um, and then there, there will be opportunities for the island itself and its users to potentially have, you know, accretive ferry service, right? Think about how NYU has an extra ferry going out to its facility out in Sunset Park. Um, but we have, you know, we do capital work in order to make those peers available, but we'll always have public access to our own ferry, which is de minimis cost. And we have a new ferry coming online. And then, of course, we are linked to NYC Ferry. But it's possible that we could also have, you know, users um, adding incremental ferry. You mean like the equivalent of shuttle buses? Kind um, of, yeah. Fact. Yeah, I think NYU does it. Or think about Ikea, right? They have their ferry to Red Hook and that's like a whole mm -hmm. outing, right? You mm -hmm. put your kid on the thing, you run around Ikea. It's a great day, right? <laughs> no pedestrian bike bridge in your, in your plants? No, look, I mean, we've, everybody knows that like the biggest elephant in the room on Governor's Island is, you know, how do you get there? Um, there's no secret that I've been pretty interested and obsessed with gondola or high speed mm -hmm. air train. I mean, we, we're, we're doing some work on thinking about that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, as we all know, there are a lot of people out there who have like, dreams of extending the number one train. You know, we've, we've seen all this stuff. We are really focused right now and our ferry service plan um, is sized to what the capacity for workers and visitors are and will be mm -hmm. based in our projections that was done in the work as part of the zoning. So that's what we're focused on right now because that's real. So big academic anchor uh, center institution, uh, things that sort of uh, accompany that, complement that, maybe some other convening space, maybe a hotel, uh, restaurants. Food. Shops, yeah. right? Yep. That's the that's the sort of vision. I mean, that's what people have to remember is that also this is that's the the south part of the island. But you know, we we are spending huge amounts of time, money, effort, and really um, making big advances in terms of activating the, the historic district. And again, this is what makes this place so unique. I mean, we have you know we went through a 2013 rezoning of the northern part of the island you know that's resulted in having the harbor school which is incredibly successful it's resulted in having the lower manhattan cultural council i mean you guys have to go see the space it's gorgeous mm -hmm. you know we're doing all these very cool arts things and temporary uses and other kinds of activations and concerts and so you know what what i don't like is when people start making it sound like this is going to be turning governor's island into something that it that it isn't or hasn't been that's not true. This is going to complement 
these other uses that are already there and hopefully also provide us the resources so that we can fully restore and preserve a lot of these buildings which are in pretty bad shape. So I think what people are forgetting is that the climate center is the focus of the new development, but it's just as likely that scholars and residents who are coming from around the globe or even from the Bronx to work on a climate change project can be living in a really cool, funky old building on Colonel's Row and then going out for a taco. I mean, that's pretty cool. And that's what we're doing. We're trying to create Mm -hmm. this really interesting, have these two parts of the island speak to each other, both architecturally, but also thematically and give more New Yorkers the opportunity to go there to do lots of different things. How many visitors are going to Governor's Island now to take advantage of the historic area and the park space that's already there? You know, I realize I don't have that number in front of me, but I I, I remember the trust told me that our our numbers now are just coming back to pre-COVID levels. And I think it's something in like the 10,000 visitors a week, but I'm gonna have to get back to you with that. What was most interesting is that of those people, it's like 80% are New Yorkers. People sometimes think like, oh, Governor's Island, the big tourist thing. You know what? The t- more tourists will be a creative. But New Yorkers are using this. I mean, and that's what's really exciting. And now also because we obviously have ferry service from Brooklyn, it's not just, you know, Manhattanites. Um, and look at their kids who schlep from the Bronx to go to the Harbor School. You mentioned, obviously, the possibility of, of staying there some sort of dorm-like facilities, uh, possible hotel. How much was actual residential housing? That debate, are you are you okay with how that landed and, and the lack of uh, the possibility of new residential housing or how do you feel about that? Um, the answer is, and I've always said this both as a deputy mayor and just as a regular human, not everything has to be about affordable housing, right? We need a balanced economy. We need to think about our land use. Um, in a in a multi asset class way, um, we have an enormous housing crisis. That doesn't mean that every piece of dirt has to be affordable housing. Um, we need to use our land smartly to drive innovation, revenue, and to continue to be New York City, the global center of the world. Right, and that's not just about housing. So for me, the debate around First of all, the debate around residential on Governor's Island was a non-debate because it's not permitted by the deed. So the only residential piece of this, and yes, and the idea that we would go back to the federal government so that we could create housing there was never on the table. I want to make that very clear, never on the table. Um, What we have done, which I think is really smart, right? And if you see whether it's a Cornell Tech or if you're at Woods Hole or if you're at the Presidio in uh, San Francisco, you need to have some opportunity for people to live, to be there 24 seven, right? So whether it's faculty who are coming for three months to go you know, build some green thing that's gonna save the planet um, or students like, you know, I always thank God, you know, if I went to city college, it'd be pretty great to have a six week thing where I get to go have a real campus experience. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so, you know, the residential is really just a use group that we use in, in order to have, um, some dorm, some faculty, some scholars and residents, and I hope opportunities for kids to experience that island, um, you know, more than just on an overnight. Okay. You know, I just have to ask, I, I look, is there really a spa or is it a plan that doesn't exist? Oh, I mean, Carol, this, now, now you're speaking my language. Yes. <laughs> 
so I certainly not only can I not take credit for this, I also can't be yelled at for this. Um, the spa was was um, the result of a 2012 RFP that the Bloomberg administration put out to see if we could get any sort of tenants and activation um, on the northern part of the island. And uh, let's just say it's taken a long time. Um, there's been some real estate cycles in there, but yes, they're, uh, they were designated. It's a fancy Italian spa. Um, and they are, are going to be opening in the fall. Um, the facility is beautiful. And, you know, it's sort of nice. You can go there, hang out, um, have a pedicure, I guess, and then go and have a, have a beer um, at the taco place. Um, you know, it is what it is. But look, at the really important thing also to remember is I find this astonishing, but there's a real mental leap that people have to make about getting there. I think some people think Governor's Island is like 100 miles away. And so just, again, proving how easy it is to get there is really, really important for the ultimate success of the island and, and it being more of a resource for everybody. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see if the spa, you know, if it takes two weeks to get a pedicure appointment, that'll be a good thing. And you're listening to What's the Data Point from Gotham Gazette and Citizens Budget Commission, Ben Max from Gotham Gazette, Carol Kellerman from CBC. We're talking with Alicia Glenn about Governor's Island. She is the former deputy mayor for housing and economic development under Bill de Blasio and now chair of the Trust for Governor's Island. Uh, Anything else on Governor's Island you wanted to hit on, Carol? No. Happy to talk about what else Alicia has been up to since she left City Hall. You started a new business called M Squared Development. Tell us about that. I, you know, when I left um, City Hall, I was really trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And I realized what I wanted to do with my life was what I've always done with my life, which is to think about how to build and contribute to great cities um, and to think a lot about what makes great cities and what makes great cities are it, you know, a built environment that has opportunity for small businesses, for people of all incomes, for great architecture, um, and for really trying to be an innovator around diversity and every single possible meaning of the word. Um, you know, I think we all know that, you know, in New York, it's both in many respects, the innovator around how we do mixed income and mixed use projects. But it's also ironically, you know, there aren't that many people who actually do it, right? It's sort of crazy. You know, one of the things people talk about is why is it always the same 10 people, the same developers, the same financing? And, you know, I just said to myself, this is crazy. I mean, I spent my whole life at the intersection of thinking about these issues. And let's be honest, it is a completely male-dominated industry. I mean, yes, there are some you know, you can always say, oh, well, I know there's this woman who did this one project or whatever, but the bottom line is real estate, real estate finance, um, development, investment management is one of the most white male dominated sectors in the country. And, you know, having been able to be both at Goldman and to have a pretty senior role in city government and having also been a legal services lawyer, you know, it's not like I haven't been around a lot of guys my whole life. But one of the things that was really clear to me is that if we want to start changing um, and making a dent in pay equity issues and really what we think about in terms of a more inclusive economy, you know, we need more women to actually be willing to be business leaders and take those risks, right? There's a political route to to racial and gender equity, but there's also a commercial route that those two things have to go hand in hand. 
And so I'd, I'd done my, you know, I, I hope I did a good job focusing on racial and gender equity in my job at City Hall. Um, but I need to do that in the private sector as well. And I need to sort of link that work with my subject matter expertise, which is developing great urban places and spaces. And that's what we're trying to do. And let me tell you something, it's not easy. It's, it's real. Um, it's real when the way in which finance and, you know, it's, it, it's not just a statistic, Carol. Um, you know, I know a lot of women and people of color in the real estate or in the fund management business who will say, notwithstanding all the talk about these issues, there are not that many people who are walking the walk. And that's, and you know me, I'm going to, I'm going to make a dent in it. You know, one of the great things about New York is that we have come up with a lot of interesting, different approaches to these issues, right? In many ways, we're the national leader. We're the first people who ever did a real mandatory inclusionary housing. We're the first city that really created zoning that allows you to do true mixed use. We have the most incredibly complicated financing programs and tax programs and, you know, all this stuff that we all take for granted there are a lot of cities around the country that are beginning to grapple with affordability crises, not just in housing, but also for nonprofits and for small businesses. And they need new solutions and they need people who understand how the finance piece works and also what they may need to do in their land use or their um, legislation to encourage and attract developers and capital to do the kinds of buildings that they now realize they need to do, right? Like people say, oh, let's keep Austin weird. Well, what they also mean about keeping Austin weird is they want Austin to also be affordable, even though Apple and all these places are coming into town. And yet they don't have a, a statute that allows them to give you a tax abatement. If you can't get a real estate tax abatement for building affordable housing, the market's not going to build affordable housing. Right. So part of why I'm so focused on the national stuff is trying to bring to other cities, notwithstanding the fact that our system isn't perfect, it's pretty good. Right. It sends pretty clear signals to the marketplace about what we want. We want mixed income housing. We want uses on the ground floor. And we're going to figure out an as of right environment to let you do that. And that's why places like the Bay Area are in trouble, because they don't have a framework that allows this kind of development to happen. So yes, I'm also proselytizing around the country about <laughs> trying to make sure these cities don't wind up where the Bay Area did. And that's exciting, you know, to go to cities and try to help them future-proof a bit. Are you at all looking at Sunnyside Yard? I don't know, I'm just throwing things out there. <laughs> Sunnyside Yard, Scott. Please God, <laughs> that they can, we can hold that coalition together and actually see something happen at Sunnyside Yards. Mm-hmm. Um, Look, I'm, I'm a big believer in the future of New York. I think everything I said nine months ago, I actually feel pretty, pretty smart and pretty smug about, right? And everybody said, you know, this is the worst. It's never going to happen. Rent growth is back. People are back. Kids want to live. Kids want to work in 3D. I don't buy this whole thing that it's the end of the world as we know it. I have a 25-year-old. She does not want to Zoom one more minute in her whole life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so housing is, we, we have a structural housing crisis in New York City. So, you know, this is going to continue to be a market that needs to be filled. We need to build mixed income housing. We need to not screw up the politics that have finally created the right framework for building mixed income housing. Um, And so there are all the neighborhoods that I worked on as deputy mayor and in my prior life that are, have a resource rich and underbuilt are places we should be building mixed income housing. It's not a big, it's like, not that deep. 
We also need to be doing those big things like creating more land, right? And that's what Sunnyside Yards is, right? How often mm-hmm. do you get an opportunity to actually create land in the center of an enormous growing metro region? Um, and so all of these things, we have sh- we need short-term support politically um, to maintain a framework that actually is beginning to start bearing fruit and not screw it up. Um, and we also need the leadership to make the sort of long-term capital and political investments in things like Sunnyside Yards so that we can continue to produce housing and commercial space to be a growing, open, progressive city. Not a city that says we don't want anything because that is the end of the world when you start saying we don't want anything. Well, the results of the mayoral primary seem to indicate where, you know, the city electorate didn't, you know, was, was favored someone. Obviously the, the conversation was dominated a lot by public safety and policing and, and, and even some other issues, not so much housing and development, but Eric Adams obviously is, a, it has at least spoken a lot about being pro growth and, and pro development. Uh, Catherine Garcia was obviously talking that way as well and finished second. So um you know, we'll, we, we, I think we should dig into the, this topic another time, but. Yeah. Um, no, I think those are, I think those are generally positive signs because mm-hmm. I think again, and we've all talked about this a lot is that a lot of the folks who tend to be anti-development, whatever that means, get a disproportionate amount of airtime compared to people who actually understand why it's important to build and invest in our neighborhoods and create more housing for all sorts of incomes because Truth of the matter is more than 50% of New Yorkers are rent burdened. And obviously that hits the lowest income people the hardest, but it also hits all the regular people who I think we've all come to rely on more and more and understand that, you know, being anti-development makes it harder for the very people who we need to have a a functioning city live here. Um, And so I hope that one of the silver linings of COVID is sort of a re-examination as about, you know, what do we mean when we think about who should live here and who the city should provide support to through its programs? And I've always said a public school teacher or a nurse has the same problem finding affordable housing as a you know, minimum wage worker. And as a city, we have an obligation to house all those people. And that requires political guts and resources. We're going to have you back uh, in, I don't know, November or something to really talk about wrapping up sort of the, the Blasio years, where the city's at on, on these issues of housing and development. But I think for, for today, we're going to let you go. We appreciate all the time on Governor's Island, which will be very interesting to watch unfold. And, and you'll keep us posted on that. I will. I'm going to ask you now my question, which I always ask everybody who asks me about Governor's Island. Okay, Ben, are you ready? I'm ready. I haven't been yet, but I'm going. I knew it. Okay, you're busted. <laughs> you're busted no, we, and you better get I, out there. And I just, that's it. That's it. And we then, actually had a trip planned and the weather wasn't <laughs> great. So we, we backed out, but uh, I'm going. Okay. okay. I've, I've been, but I'm, you really made me ready to go right back. Although I may wait for this bottle. Alyssa, thank Dan, thanks, thanks very much for the time. <laughs>